Let us now turn to Psalm 68. To the chief musician, the Psalm of David's song. Read the first 19 verses. The Psalm merits hundreds of sermons. We will give it one. And I say give it as an offering to God who has himself inspired this great psalm and may it inspire in you many sermons and many godly reactions to the content of this amazing psalm. We'll read the first 19 verses and we'll focus on the first three. Hear the word of God. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those also who hate him flee before him as smoke is driven away. So drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel, You, O God, sent a plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. Your congregation dwelt in it. You, O God, provided from your goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee. They flee. And she who remains at home divides the spoil. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver, and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Zalman. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, Even thousands of thousands, the Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord, who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Thus far we read the word of God in Psalm 68, again, Draw your attention to the three verses at the top of the psalm. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those also who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad, let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. If, beloved, the battle is against the Amalekites, as we heard this morning, the battle of the church of all ages is against the Amalekites who represent the world 
and it is the church's battle. This psalm is the church's battle cry. Over the ages and throughout history, which is church history fundamentally, the story of God gathering his people, the church has had to battle. And she has cried at every battle, at every time, at every stroke, at every temptation, in every trial. She has cried out, let God arise and let the enemies of God be scattered and let them be confounded and let the righteous rejoice. At the head of every battle of the true church of Christ, this battle cry is heard, let God arise. In fact, this psalm is not only a battle cry or headed by a battle cry, but it is filled and laced with truth of the God who is a great triumphant God. One commentator has called this psalm a rushing cataract of praise, a mighty waterfall spilling from heaven the praises of God, refreshing the people below for its praise as and the praiseworthiness of God. The entire psalm rehearses the march of God to victory. He rises up and he goes to victory and the people of God rejoice. In fact, there is a rejoicing such that the kings of the earth shall participate in that celebration of God and they too shall now be on the side of the people of God against the Amalekites, crying out in the battle, let God arise. So the question we ask us today is this cry, let God arise, something that we feel thrilled about? Is it something indeed that we are so happy about and happy to make as a church of Jesus Christ? Are you in churches where the battle cry is so expressed with joy, the joy of those justified by faith alone in Christ alone, the joy of knowing that God is our captain and our salvation in Jesus? We know the battle. Do we say the battle cry, let God arise? And is this our happy militancy? Indeed, it needs to be, and this sermon is so that it might be. Now, I have two points in this sermon, all too short. Yes, all too short for the, the, to give uh, justice to the text and to the psalm, but we will have to in the interests of time. But I have two points, and they arise from a translation difference, and that is this. In the Hebrew, there is a tense that could be translated present or future. And so we could read here, God arises. Or we could read here in the first three words, God will arise. Or we could read, let God arise. And so there can be here a declaration of truth, God rises, or God will arise. It's a prophecy. Or it could be something that is a prayer, let God arise. We're going to come from both those points of view. First of all, the prophecy, God rises. Secondly, the prayer, and I expand that second point into all of piety. It's prayer indeed, but a key part of this battle cry for those who make it by faith is joy. And so for piety, joy, and prayer, and all manner of godliness, because we believe the God who rises, we want to consider the call to rise up, O God, which includes a call, rise up, O men and women of God. 
What is the meaning of this, that God rises? Or if it's a prayer that we are calling God to arise, let God arise. May he rise up for us. What does that mean? Now, that's especially important when we consider our theology, which we always must. You almost, always must consider your theology when you're coming to a text. We don't come empty-minded, empty-headed. We come with understanding, knowing what the rest of the Bible teaches about, say, the nature of God. Well, what do we know about the nature of God? Who is God? Well, he's high, isn't he? He's the most high God. He is the Elyon, the most high of all gods. There is no other God, which is what theologians call the transcendence of God. He's so far up that he's above all the creation, this mighty, vast creation, which we're told is full of millions and millions of galaxies besides ours. This cannot contain God. He's above that, meaning he's above all the limitations of this universe. He's made it, after all. And we're this tiny spot in the middle of this universe somewhere, or maybe on the edge of it, who knows, but this tiny spot where God has been pleased to reveal himself in Jesus and to save a people for his own. But he is the God who, yes, indeed, visits us, but he doesn't always give the answers as to how this can be that he rises up, for example, when he's already up. And so you're talking to your neighbor. This truth is for witnessing, after all. And your neighbor says, what's this about your God? You, you are so fanatic, not only in Sundays, but on, in every day of the week, that you and your children serve God. God, you say, well, who is this God? And you might say to him, well, I have a God who, who rises up. And they'll say, what? They'll say, What? Oh, yes, and in fact, he rose up for me yesterday, you might say, and he was there when I needed him, and he rose up to, to help me and to get me out of the mess that I made. And then they might ask you, how can that be? For you've also said to me, perhaps you've witnessed to this neighbor before, that this God inhabits eternity, and you've quoted a prophet. Was it Isaiah? Yes, it was. So God inhabits eternity, he's up, and yet he rises up. What kind of a God is this? You've also said that he doesn't change. He never comes down off of his throne. How can it be that he comes down in some way, which you must admit he must, your neighbor says, if he's to rise up again and again, as you're saying he does? Well, to get at that, let's understand that there's a figure of speech here with regard to the God of Israel. Rising up is described as his taking a position, as his meeting the needs of a people, as his presenting himself, whatever it means. But it's a way that the Bible is God speaking to us in language we can understand. Not saying we can understand it perfectly, but there is a God who's up, but he also rises up. Which means, of course, in one way or another, he has to be down in order to rise up. So here's this God who's always up. He's always God. He's not just a fixed principle, but a changeless God who nevertheless is down in some sense and must rise up. And we, we sense the need of his rising up, and so we call him to rise up. 
and we sense the need of giving Him glory, so we preach that He's up and risen and will arise and all those things of prophecy. So there's a figure of speech, but there's something more that the Bible gives us here. And gladly and thankfully, there's a text, and I want to turn that to that with you in Numbers chapter 10, where there's a reference to something here that we should all know that was very important in Israel's life. And there's something in Numbers 10, 35, and, or let's go to 33 and following. It was the Ark of the Covenant. We're about to hear the directions for that in our series on the Exodus. But Numbers is this reflection upon the Exodus and the journeys of the Exodus from a different point of view than Exodus itself. And here they are departing now from the mountain, verse 33, chapter 10 of Numbers. So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them for the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. Now, the Ark of the Covenant went before them like a person. And the cloud of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of His presence, was above them by day when they came out from the camp. So it was, whenever the Ark set out, that Moses said, listen for our text, children, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, verse 36, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. So you see, there's a reference here to what the Bible calls typology. And the typology is this. The way that God communicated to Israel as to little children in pictures and in, in ways that were symbolic of reality. There was an ark. It was a box. It was a sacred box about this long, about this wide, about this high made of acacia wood, covered with gold, the top of which was the mercy seat, inside the law, the pot of uh, manna and Aaron's rod that budded. And so these were symbolic of the presence of God. And so the rising up of the ark was to them the rising up of God. And it really was, not just to them, it was how God visited and dwelt among the people and rose up and came back down to his resting place in this Ark of the Covenant. And so this is one way in which God rises up. It's this rising up to lead them in the wilderness. God, by his, the Ark rising up and moving, was to be followed. And he was leading to another place in the wilderness. And there was also, uh, and this may be a reference in our text, to the taking up of the ark by David into the place prepared. Remember from Obadidim, that house where it was for a while? And then he took it to a place prepared in Zion. Could be a reference to that in our Psalm 68, 24, and 25, to this taking up of the ark by David. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after. Besides that, Solomon, at the, um, at the dedication of the temple, was one who knew that God was going to dwell in the place, and so he spoke of God going into the temple, and he was referring to the Ark of the Covenant. But now, 
Our text specifically, according to the reference that it's making to Numbers 10, is referring to God rising up to battle, to do battle. So that when the ark rises, symbolizing God rising, it is said, let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. And so it was when God rises up, the people would say, God arises or let God arise because they would now triumphantly see the the vindication of God and the work of God against the enemies and the work of God to clear the way for the people of God and their salvation. So our text dwells on this, this scattering of the enemies as smoke is driven away by a hurricane. Smoke is this wisps in the air, even the smoke from Canada, nothing to God, the hurricane that is God, the storm that is his wrath, blasts all the smoke away, drives them away. Wax melts before the fire. When God is present in his holiness, the wicked melt like wax. They have no chance before God. They are dispersed. They are destroyed. So this is the reference here. So now this rising up, symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant, rising up into its resting place in the tabernacle or temple, rising up to lead the people in the wilderness in the cloud of glory, rising up to do, for God doing battle, is this wonderful text that we have before us. It assumes, however, something that's maybe even more marvelous, and that's this. That before there was this rising up of God, there was this coming down of God to be with his own Israel. The ark is called, after all, the ark of the covenant. And the covenant of God with Israel was his promise of being with his people, the actual being of his people, the relationship that God has with his people as God with them. So he condescends, comes down to be with, and this is what is the foundation of his going up. He who first ascends must first have descended in order to get to the place where he could ascend. And it's all about giving his saving help, providing his great presence to people like you and me, sinners, saved by his grace and the blood atonement typified in the shedding of the blood of the animals in Israel. God leads, God defends, God is this God who is up, who comes down and who goes up to be with us, to meet our needs and to show himself God. In fact, the whole psalm is about this. This God who rises up, this God who is there with the people to show them his saving help and presence. If you look at it, there's a deliverance from Egypt that's celebrated, his leading through the wilderness, his making Zion the habitation so that Zion is the envy of all the other mountains. Little Zion is the envy of the mountains of Bashan and so on. There is this wonderful rising up of God so that the enemies are judged, the people are saved, and so that finally the kings of the earth will join in the praises of this God and in their battle cry, let God arise. Now for us, 
redeemed from among men. So that's the first part of this first point about the meaning, the declaration, the prophecy of the God who arises. This really is the whole Bible, isn't it, beloved? It's always amazing how we're able to tie in text with the Bible and and to see how the text is a reflection of the Bible. And it doesn't often take much tying, does it? And you could do it, and I could do it. If we just think about it and how the Bible is one word, it's about God, and it's about this God who is up, who comes down, who rises up for the help of the people. And we know what that's about. That's about Jesus. In fact, this text is referring to Jesus, to God and Jesus Christ revealed. Ephesians 4 is, in fact, when it speaks of Jesus in his dissension and his condescension, quoting from our psalm, Psalm 68, and Psalm 68 and verse 18, which says, You have ascended on high, led captivity captive. You've received gifts among men, even for the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Jesus is referred to, clearly, when in Ephesians 4, 7, the apostle says, But to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, the Bible, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended. He who came down is the one who goes up, and he ascends far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Oh, beloved, Here's a text worth pondering, and the psalm points us right to it. We don't know what the psalmists knew about these things that were to come, things that we know because they've happened, but the word of prophecy and the spirit of prophecy is Jesus. And all the prophets and all the psalmists, they spoke of Jesus and his sufferings and afflictions and afterward his glory also the glory of his ascension. Jesus came, and when he came, he came down. We realize that. He had glory, the glory of the only begotten with the Father before the foundation of the world, John 17. And when he came down, he, he left the, the, the felt presence of that glory, as it were, and, and voluntarily limited himself so that the Son became a servant But to behold him tabernacling among us, John says, was to behold him who revealed the glory of the God of Israel. So we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 14 through 18. He comes and his incarnation is a dissension that has to be before he goes up in his ascension. His crucifixion going to death itself, his descension for our sake into hell so that he bears the wrath of God for our sin. This is part of this whole psalm. Speaking of the rising up of God, for I say to you, beloved, it is in the coming down of God that the great glory of God is seen the most. In fact, in his coming down, it is condescending and first descending. 
There is a going up. How can this be? Well, it is. The truth of God. When he comes down, you see more glory. Not more in glory and not like one of us is he, but he's this glorious God who loves us. He's the champion of sinners. The God of heaven goes to hell. The God who's never forsaken is forsaken. The God who's sinless bears our sin and he bears it away. In the book of Acts, the rising up of the Son of God is something that's mentioned in Acts 3, in verse 30, 26, in this way. Acts 3, verse 26. To you first, speaking to the Jews, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Could be that that raising up of the servant Jesus is not referring, first of all, to the ascension, but simply to God's presenting Jesus. That's what happened. There's a raising up, a presentation of God, the God who rises up in the coming into the flesh of the Son who's descending, who's descended, who's humbled low even to death and to hell. To turn sinners from their iniquities. And then he does rise, of course. His coming down is a kind of going up. A pleasing to God. But his going up is the real and ultimate rising up from the dead. Something the Bereed family celebrated this past week. The rising from the dead. The rising of a mom and a grandma, a wife, the mother, the rising from the dead of a believer in Jesus, all because Jesus rose first. And he is the first fruits of them that sleep, and he will come again because he's ascended all the way to heaven. He rises up. Now the amazing thing is, he who's up and on high, gloriously reigning, continues to be with us and to rise up, as it were, and present himself to meet our every need. This leads to my second and final point. There is, I said here, a way to translate the Hebrew in Psalm 68, that God shall arise could be translated God arises, and that's true, that's true. He arises, he has risen. And he shall arise, according to the perspective of the psalmist. And he shall arise and be known in all his glory when he comes again. But there's another sense in which we, we celebrate the fact that he's there in our need. When we call upon him, let God arise, he does. He does. This... Psalm is for the ones who are the theologians, but who are on the ground facing many enemies, many enemies indeed. And helpless we are before them. Powers of darkness we cannot combat in ourselves. We cannot combat the devil in, himself, in, in ourselves. We are weak before him. Look at Moses even this morning. One of those points I forgot to bring out. Moses was weak 
They needed to be propped up. <laughs> propped up. He's an 80-year-old man. I'm feeling like it. And then he needed his arms to be propped up by Aaron and her. And there's this weak man interceding in a strong and mighty way because God was on his side and God was telling him, raise the rod, just, just look to me and point the people to me. And so when we're in the battle, we need to utter the battle cry almost in desperation sometimes, don't we? Oh, let God arise. At a funeral, at a grave, let God arise. Help me, God, in the face of this last enemy, in this desolate-looking coffin and grave amongst the dead in the cemetery. Let God arise. Just heard from the doctor, someone say, got cancer. With so many days, weeks, months to live. And you say, and you can hardly get the words out, oh God, help me. Help me. That's calling God to rise. That's calling him to show himself powerful. That's calling upon him in the name of Jesus. That's raising up your arms and your heart to God in Jesus' name. And for the sake of him who rose on our behalf, and not letting anything get in the way of that. Because the Lord God is the Lord God of battles. And because he's up, and he's come down and he rises up, he wins them all. Every single battle. And that for your sake too. So from the prophecy of the rising God, there comes this piety of prayer. That's piety. That's holiness. This communication of sinners who are down. We're just little people. Just about that big. You think of an ant, children. Ants can't even look up. How can we hardly look up to God and see him? We're so small. And remember, God being up is so far away and so high, and God being holy we are so unworthy of his presence. So we call him. Not because we think he's asleep and we have to shake him like the gods bail. Why are they sleeping? Call, cry a little louder, Elijah mocks with holy mockery. Not because we think God is sleeping, but it's simply because that's what he wants us to do. He's God who's up. He knows we're down. He says, now lift up your prayers to me. Pray in my name, Jesus says. Be confident in my name, in the God who's up above and yet with you in the problems, in the nastiness, in the battles. Pray to him and he will destroy your enemies. He will rise up. Remember when I was first converted, a hard time was sleeping. Because of dreams, movies I had seen, nightmares I had had, but continued to replay in my mind, temptations at night. And I remember praying to God, oh God, God of the night, help me. Defeat these temptations for me. 
Be thou there when I'm sleeping. Rise up and be over my bed. Be over my heart and my mind and my emotions. And God answered that prayer. And then later on, I remember 30 years later, at the council, another newly converted Roman Catholic brother about his dreams. And I said the same thing to him. You cry out, God arise, help me. In my night of terror, even, terror. And God answers. He answers. Well, beloved, and we pray then that God would help us. But have you ever thought of this? That we would pray also that God indeed would have his enemies be scattered. That's part of this prayer after all. We can't just pick and choose what we want to pray. Let God arise, help me. But we pray also let his enemies be scattered. It's like the catechism that says when you pray, let the kingdom of God come. It's so that the works of darkness are destroyed. You pray that, don't you? Hey, the works of darkness be destroyed, not just against you personally, but against God's enemies. Let his enemies be scattered. That's what you pray. It's not that we're now disobeying Jesus because we're not dealing here with our enemies, first of all. It's God's. God has enemies. The God who's up has enemies. Not that they're going to overthrow him ever. Not that they're a challenge to God. He's up, after all, and nothing on the earth moves him because he's God immovable, unchangeable. And yet there's these enemies that he condescends to have and to make and to rise up before him to show off the glory of his holiness, his justice, and his almighty arm. And he has an almighty arm. And he does. And his great heart to save sinners from the Amalekites. Whatever enemies you have, the enemies are described, after all, as those who hate him. They're being enemies, their presence is like smoke, however, and like wax. It's really nothing. You ever think of that when you're praying for your enemies to be destroyed, that before God they're like smoke, wisps of air, and wax that melts before fire? You ever think of that? When your children come home maybe from school and they're tempted by false professors who go by the name of Christian with philosophies, Oh, maybe God didn't say this. Oh, maybe there's no hell for everyone and heaven for everybody. You ever think that those philosophies are like smoke before God and like wax before God? They are as nothing. And one word of truth shall fell those mighty doctorates and double docs, those great learned men and women. You ever think that the great things and the great tides that are sweeping through the world are going to get at you? Think again. God is the God of tides. God, of God, God is the God of times. God is the guide of all societies. And he's ruling over the nations. Look at Psalm 2. That's why we have a battle cry. Let God arise because he sits in the throne and he that sits in the throne shall laugh. Ha, ha, ha at the machinations of the enemies who attempt to dethrone him and who dare to touch the apple of his eye. 
that sensitive part of his eye. Don't ever try to touch the apple of the eye of God, the children of God. That's his challenge to the wicked. They will be destroyed like smoke driven from the hurricane and wax melting before the fire of God. Pray in this way in light of the battle. There is a another thing, and I'll tell you this. I'm a preacher, and I believe in men preachers, but my wife helps me to preach. She said, don't forget this. The ascension is not just about our praying, and that's, that would be enough if it is. It makes us to pray and to have the battle cry of God on our, on our lips. But it's also about our being thankful because here's what happens when Jesus ascends and he has all of these treasures of atonement that he's taking up. You wonder how he got there. So laden was he with treasures. Uh, if we speak as a man, I speak as a man. But there he was, and here he has these treasures, and he begins to dispense them from heaven as a result of his cross and the good pleasure of God. Blessed be the Lord. This is right after the reference to the ascension, who's led captivity captive, a way of describing the complete rout of sin and Satan. He's dragged them all in his train, and he's displaying them as the defeated ones. That's what he's doing as Jesus when he gets to heaven. And he's received gifts among men or from men, even from the rebellious, that's from you and I, that the Lord God might dwell there. And then this praise, blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation. Well, I'll say, Jesus daily loads us with benefits. And you'll note here in the New King James, I don't know what it is in the King James with benefits is not in the original. We could just say he daily loads us. And then you put in anything good after that. He daily loads us with wisdom, with courage, with humility, with people in our lives, with a blessed congregation who for 12 years he's blessed me with every single one of you. The ones who's come, the ones who've gone, and the ones who shall come. What a blessing. And daily, 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 there's no bad day for God, you know. There's no off day for God. There might be for us, in spite of our prayerlessness, and indeed, in the way of our prayerlessness, God is one who doesn't give us these things, but in spite of them, often he does give things, and how that works is because of grace and because God is the God who is a great and generous Father. But whatever it is, he loads us up. And whatever we receive from the cross and the blood of the Lamb is given as free gifts showing the worth of the Son. We're blessed. Spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It might not be health. It might not be wealth. It might not be this great super mega church. It might not be this and that and the other thing that everybody else is coveting, even in evangelicalism. However, it will be what the ascended Lord knows is right for us and good for us and the best for us in this weary night. Think of that. And we can never then complain. I often wonder 
when people say, when I say how they are, and they say, I can't complain, I wonder what they mean by that. You may not complain, but maybe they're onto something. You can't complain, can you? It's impossible to complain if you're in the Spirit and you're understanding the God who goes up and rises up and then He comes down to help you in your need and He showers down benefits and they hit you. Suddenly they hit you. There's this flash of inspiration or this or that or the other thing. Aha! This is the way out. This is the relationship I have. have. This is now the courage God's giving me to say no to this other thing that I got into. This is the way through all the distractions of life. This is the wisdom of the Word of God I've been reading over and over. But now, it's like the light's gone out, on. And my days and my nights are never going to be the same. I'm going to rejoice. That's the keynote of this psalm. Let the righteous in Christ be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. One of the Psalms that celebrates the ascension of Christ says, all nations, clap your hands. David, when the ark was ascending and he was taking up the ark of the covenant from the house of Obedin, he danced before the Lord and he was mocked by Michael. But he danced the holy dance because he was so happy so happy. Well, beloved, when Jesus ascends, and we read this in Ephesians 4, he ascended and he didn't leave the place of vacuum. He ascended that he might fill all things. You think of that, when Jesus went up, and you think God goes up, well then, you're going to suck the air out of it. There's nothing here when Jesus leaves. Oh, he's not like that. When he rises up, He sends the Spirit. When He rises up, He sends those benefits. When He rises up, He works in the hearts of the sons and daughters of God and of the generations to come and the ones who are celebrating birthdays and maybe they're only nine years old and so on. They're going to be the ones to carry on and fight the good fight and utter this battle cry, let God arise for Sovereign Grace Church, for my family, for my marriage, for my ministry, for your ministry, wherever it is. All of which is to say, because Jesus has gone up, and with a shout, men of God, you rise up. We shall one day, but this Ascription of praise to God, as really it is, when we prophesy of the God who rises, and when we pray that God would arise, and when we have Jesus on our minds and in our hearts. It's all because we've risen up. We are those taken up to be with Jesus in heaven in principle. We sit there and reign with him. And in this life, it's like we're in this world and not of this world, as the reformers would say. We're in it, but not of it. We're in it, and we care for this world, and we care for the people of this world. Of course, we have lots of things to do in this world, but we're the up men and the up women, aren't you? 
whether you're single or you're married, you're up in your spirits not only, but in your, your elevation. The only thing that goes down is your pride because now Jesus is your life and giving glory to him is everything about you, isn't it? With all your time, with all your loves. God has gone up with a shout. God is the God who's risen in living and in dying. Let us so be glad that that God gets the glory in the piety and praise of his people. That's you. Rise up, church of God. Your God is risen. Amen. Father, we pray that you would bless and keep us in the hollow of your, your hand, in the truth as it is in Jesus, in the faith. We pray, Father, that the words we've stammered may nevertheless be true and truly go into our hearts. May it elevate our spirits. May it be for a raising of us up who were cast down, a bringing of us back who were wandering away, and a direction to us who were wandering and aimless. God, we pray, receive all the glory. No glory to man. Receive all the glory. God who is up, God who is on high, and God who is coming again. We pray your kingdom come, O oh God. Come quickly. And until that comes, we pray to be those zealous for your cause, fighting the battles of faith and crying out the great battle cry. Let God arise. Amen.